are in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, and uh, we're going to be exploring verses 19 through 23. Colossians 1, chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. As you're turning there, let's take a moment and pray together. Father, this is your word, and so we pray that you would accompany its reading and proclamation with the presence and power of your Spirit, so that Christ might be exalted in our hearts, in our midst, in our minds this morning, that we might live like Him and for Him today and every day being conformed to His image through the truth we find here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Christmas Eve 1914, during World War I, something unusual happened. In the midst of a brutal and and bloody war, a, a war that would eventually cause over 40 million casualties, On Christmas Eve, the British soldiers hunkered down in the trenches along the western front began to hear something quite out of the ordinary across the battlefield. Gunshots and explosions had faded out of sound, and on on this day, it was being replaced by, of all things, singing, the Christmas hymn, Silent Night. German soldiers were singing this Christmas hymn, and, and it's hard to say precisely what happened here. There have been several accounts of this event, but, but mostly just from diary entries, letters to home, and the like. But what we do know is that on Christmas Eve 1914, during this bloody and brutal war, there was a temporary, informal, unplanned truce, in some places at least. And so when British soldiers heard their German enemies across the battlefield, many rose from their positions, they joined in, in singing and games and Christmas festivities. They, they cut one another's hair. They shared cigarettes. They ate together. In one place, they even joined in a soccer match. And of course, it, it's, very, it's very remarkable that a thing like this would happen. These nations, these soldiers at bitter war with one another, joining their voices and singing, joining their hands in prayer even. One German lieutenant is recorded as saying about the event, how marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. He says the the English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. And of course, it only was for a time. And as the matter has been looked into more and more, it seems that even this temporary truce, it was accompanied by some officers holding ulterior motives and maybe getting a better look at what was going on on the other side. And yet, even still, there's something remarkable about all of this, this story, this occurrence, this event. It portrays something enduringly potent about what we remember this time time of year, that the Son of God has come to bring peace. The Son of God has come to bring peace. Well, this morning, we're continuing our Advent sermon series, exploring not just that Christ has come, but why He has come. We discussed last week the the, the problem of, of mission creep, wherein we can sometimes lose sight of why exactly the Son of God has been sent into the world. 
And of course, biblically speaking, the reason Christ has come into the world is to save sinners, to seek and to save the lost. And we saw last week that this included the, the, the doctrine of propitiation, that Christ came to die the death that we deserve as sinners to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. This morning, we, we continue on to see that Christ has come not only to bring propitiation, but to bring peace, or to put it another way, He has come to bring reconciliation to His fallen creatures and to this fallen creation. We see that as we turn now to Colossians 1. Verses 19 through 23. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the word of our God. We're looking at verses 19 through 23, but uh, so we can get maybe just some of the context here. We're going to start at, at verse 15 and read 15 through 23. Let's listen now to the good news of our God. Speaking about Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can be seated. Well, we're dropping into the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae here. And we know Colossians to be one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote from prison near the end of his life. This local church to whom he was writing had been recently planted by another brother named Epaphras. And it was evidently a a fruitful and, and growing church. And yet, it was also a church under attack. It seems from reading the letter and piecing together the hints that there were false teachers and a false teaching seeking to infiltrate this new church here. And so the apostle is writing this letter to try to keep this church and its members on course. And of course, it's, it's, it's hard to know for certain what exactly these false teachings threatening the church were. Uh, there are varying theories, and some of them are quite imaginative. But, but from piecing the hints together, it seems that the false teaching came from some sort of local Jewish and pagan folk beliefs, and these beliefs involved worshiping angels as well as trusting in certain rites and ceremonies for protection from evil spirits and harm and salvation. And so it's within this context that Paul writes to this church and its members asserting the absolute supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that there's no angel, there's no rite, no ceremony, no practice, 
no philosophy, no gurus that are at all worthy of their trust and adoration, like the Lord Jesus is worthy of their trust and adoration. He wants them to know that instead of getting distracted by all sorts of local cultural ideas and cultic practices, that they ought to keep their their minds and their hearts fixed on Christ Jesus as the supreme one, the preeminent one, the glorious one. And that's precisely what verses 15 to 18 that we just read are seeking to make the case for, that Christ is ultimately the supreme one. But then in the verses we're considering this morning, 19 through 23, they tell us partly about the basis of His supremacy. Why is Christ the supreme one, according to Paul? Why is He alone worthy of our adoration and trust? Well, Paul wants us to see here that Christ alone is worthy of our adoration and trust because He alone is the Creator who put on creation to bring reconciliation. In other words, He alone is the God who put on human flesh and who alone did so so that He might bring us and all of the created order into a state of everlasting peace with God and His new creation. That's the big idea we're working with this morning, that Christ is the Creator who put on creation to bring reconciliation. We're going to kind of work our way through that, looking uh, uh, through our text, seeing here God and man in one in verse 19. Heaven and earth at one in verse 20, and God and us at one in verses 21 to 23. First, though, we see God and man in one. So this is the season of Advent. We've, we've talked a little bit about that this morning. We're, this is a season when we're looking forward to the second coming of our Lord, when He will make all things new, and we're, in, we're also looking back to His first coming, remembering that He has taken on flesh for us. And, of course, we, we, we call this the Incarnation which is precisely what we see Paul addressing here in our text this morning. Paul says in verse 19 that the reason Christ is supreme above all is because in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the apostle says something very similar in Colossians 2.9 where he writes that in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity is found, Paul says, in Christ. Now, what does that mean? If I could put it this way, it means that everything God is, Christ is. Everything God is, Christ is. And that's because He is God, right? Christ is God in all of His fullness. In Him is found the full nature of of God. In him is found the complete being of God because he is God and he is nothing less than God. Of course, as Christians, we believe that God is, is a trinity, a triune being. God is one being, but as one being, God has existedly or eternally existed in three persons. And understand, it's not as if those three persons are each like a part of God. You know, it's it's, it's not like they're each one-third God and together they make up the whole being of God. No, each person is truly and fully God themselves, and yet there's still only one God. And what we're remembering this time of year is that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is Himself fully God, that He has come and added to His deity humanity. He has taken on our flesh, our humanity, but not in a way that diminishes, diminishes or lessens His deity. No, He is still truly and fully God. All the fullness of God dwells in Him. 
Now, that, that language of dwelling there is, is hearkening back to the, the old covenant uh, temple or tabernacle. You know, in the old covenant, God dwelled among his people in a tent and later a temple. And it seems probable here that the Apostle Paul is, is picking up that language uh, from Psalm 68, verses 16 to 18, where the psalmist speaks about the temple as the abode and the dwelling place that God desired that God was pleased to dwell in. Well, here in Colossians 1.19, we see that the man Christ Jesus is that dwelling place in the new covenant. He is the new temple of God. He is God dwelling among us. This is why you're going to see repeatedly this time of year references to Jesus as Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It's, It's from Isaiah 7 and 8 and Matthew 1 where Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who Christ is for us. He is God with us. We read John chapter 1 earlier in in John's gospel. John there picks up uh, on, on, on this idea, calling Christ the Word. And he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, just as Paul is saying in in Colossians chapter 1 here, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, this word that has existed from eternity past with the Father, he is God. He's the creator of all things, just as Paul says here. But then in John 1.14, the apostle says something astounding. He says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word dwelt there might, might be more literally translated as tabernacled, the word became flesh and was tabernacled among us, hearkening back to, to God dwelling with his people in a tent, right? In, in Christ, God is tabernacled. He dwells bodily as a man with us because Jesus, though true man, is also true God. He has two natures united in one person. He's the God of all heaven and earth, come down to earth and dwelling in the dust of our flesh. And this in and of itself is astounding, isn't it? As one pastor has written, you can read every fairy tale that was ever written, every mystery thriller, every ghost story, and you will never find anything so shocking, so strange, so weird, so spellbinding as the incarnation of the Son of God. Friends, on on its own, this is worth simply stopping and marveling at this morning. That that God would would become and dwell among us as a man, ought to astonish our dull and dreary hearts this morning. It ought to reawaken wonder and and awe in us and captivate us this morning. But what's more is that this outrageous scandal of God in flesh has not taken place without this coming purpose in mind. The advent of the Son of God has taken place for a reason as we've been considering in this series that the incarnation has taken place for the purpose we see here in our text of peace. The 
creator put on creation to bring, to bring reconciliation between creator and creation. This is why God has come, which is what we read here in verse 20 as we go on to see heaven and earth at one. Paul goes on writing that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and listen, through Him to reconcile to Himself some things. No, all things. Where? Whether on earth or in heaven. That's pretty comprehensive. Making peace by the blood of His cross. So Christ is God and man in one, so that through Him all things might be reconciled and brought to peace as one. All things, he says. Now don't misunderstand the apostle here. All all things does not mean to communicate the idea of universal redemption. Okay, or or, uh, what's sometimes called universalism. Some might teach here that the apostle is, is teaching universalism, which is a doctrine that all people, each and every single individual, will be forgiven and redeemed in the end because of what Christ has done. Regardless of whether or not that person repents and places their faith and trust in Christ, universalism says they will be saved. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Elsewhere, like in Romans 2.5, for example, the Apostle Paul will write about how those with unrepentant hearts are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. On that day, he says in Romans 2.8, that for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul is not a universalist. He taught about the final judgment, that there's a coming day of wrath and hell to pay for rebelling against the one true God. So there's, there's no way that Paul is writing as a universalist here. Instead, rather, he's talking about Christ as the cosmic redeemer. That Christ's redeeming and reconciling work is a work of cosmic proportions. Now this is undoubtedly going to, it might challenge some of our thinking, or maybe even be a a new concept for a few of us, that that Christ is not only the Savior of individual human souls, but of all creation, of the entirety of the cosmos that God has spoken into being. That Christ-saving work is, is meant to encompass all of the created order. That's what's meant here. When the apostle says, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Right? When a biblical writer speaks about both heaven and earth in this way, he's usually talking about really just the entirety of the cosmos, the entirety of the created order. He's talking about the rock we're sitting on right now, as well as everything above us, all things, and he's saying that Christ is the Savior and Redeemer of it all. Of course, we just spent three Sundays in Genesis 3, And in Genesis 3, we saw humanity fall into sin and depravity and separation from God. But what's more is that we saw in humanity's fall, the fall of the created order, didn't we? When humanity fell, the created order fell with us. Now we live in a world wherein thorns and thistles infest the ground, where natural disasters occur, where hardship in opposition to the created order, plagues us, where societies are prone to derision and division and destruction, where pain and disease harm our bodies, where bodily death awaits us in, in the end, where we experience the kind of things that are written on these cards up here. We live in a world splintered and fractured and atomized 
and broken. We live in a cursed cosmos because of our sin and its effects. It's all spread like a cancer, reaching its tentacles into every aspect of the created order. And so do you see here that in Christ being the creator of it all, that it is fitting for him to likewise be the savior of it all. And surely he is nothing less than the savior of all his cursed creation. As one theologian has put it, if redemption does not go as far as the consequences of sin, it is a misnomer and fails to be redemption. The salvation of any number of individuals is not the redemption of what fell, but gathering up of a few splinters. And in such case, Satan's mischief would go further than Christ's restoration. But that's not the case. The good news of Colossians 1.20 is that Christ's redemption will undo all of Satan's mischief. In other words, the, the, the work of Christ has been accomplished in order to redeem and restore and reconcile nothing less than the entirety of the created order. Christ did not only die to forgive us so that we might go to heaven when we die. And he's not planning to one day come back and transport us out of this world forever and do away with the created order while we exist forever in an in ethereal heaven as disembodied spirits. No, Christ came. And he died and he rose in order to redeem and restore and renew the entirety of the created order. He is God and man in one so that the entirety of the created order might be at one again. So that all things will be made whole. That's what those words reconciliation and peace are getting at here. Created order needs reconciling because it's under the curse of sin. It's broken and fractured. And frustrated and filled with pain. It needs to be made whole because that's what God has intended for his creation from the beginning. And, and, and that's what this word peace is communicating. It's communicating this Hebrew idea that we sang about earlier of, of shalom. Shalom means peace. It, it, it's far more than just a lack of conflict or an inner serenity as we typically think of when we hear the word peace. Peace, shalom, biblically means the fullness of harmony and wholeness. It means things being as they should be. And Christ came and died and rose for nothing less. That's why we sing this time of year. No more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? It's found throughout the entirety of the created order. And so Christ has come to make it whole and at peace and right again. And he has accomplished this, Paul says, by the blood of his cross. You know, it's no coincidence that the thorns that represent the curse that lies upon the created order in Genesis 3 are placed upon the head of Jesus on his cross. Because when he was there, suspended on that tree, the curse and judgment pronounced in the created order in Genesis 3 was being pronounced upon the Son of God so that the justice of God might be satisfied and the curse on this world reversed. So that one day, when Christ comes again and applies the redemption he accomplished in his cross, we will see the full effect of that take place. He will work again to, to renew all of heaven and earth. 
all the thorns and thistles will be vanquished. All sin and sorrow will cease. All bodily pain and disease and death will be overcome by abundant eternal life. All things, things on heaven and on earth, will be reconciled and at peace and whole and broken no more. And we will dwell with our God in complete fullness and wholeness forever and ever. This is why Christ has come. And it's what He will complete when He comes again. How do we apply this? In this between time, we have a calling as God's people. As people of the incarnation, of the one who is both God and man in one, as people of His advent, as those who are animated by His first and awaiting His second, we are called to be a sign and a foretaste of the reality that He has come to begin and will one day come to complete. The church is to be like an appetizer for the coming feast. We're to be like a a movie trailer for the, the coming attraction. We're to be like an embassy or a colony of the world to come in this present time. We're to display for one another and for a watching world what the world to come will be like. This is a a crucial purpose for churches like us in this present time. It's part of why we exist in the world. So how do we do do that faithfully? One day, one way we can do this is by being a people of peace amongst ourselves. By being a, a... community, a church who, Ephesians 4.3, maintains the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. By being those who, who live as people of peace and unity and reconciliation amongst ourselves. By being those who pursue reconciliation when there's conflict with one another. Who forgive one another when, when sinned against. Who are patient with one another's faults and shortcomings. In fact, I'm thinking that that, that that kind of life together in this present time might just be one of the biggest things that set us apart from, from our generation. And we live in a, in, a, in a time where people are increasingly outraged by one another's faults and sins and shortcomings. We're in grudges and, and bitterness abound and are increasingly justified. We, we live in a time of such vitriol wherein there's little patience with one another's faults. Within a time, Ray Ortland says, we're in a wildfire is spreading across our social landscape, a bloodlust for argumentation and disagreement and winning. And thus we live in a time and place wherein reconciliation and peace are in short supply. But it's not, it's not supposed to be like what that among us as the people of God, as an embassy and colony of the age to come, we're to embody the culture of Christ's coming kingdom more than the kingdom of this world we dwell in. As people of the advent of the Lord Jesus, we're to be a people of reconciliation and peace. A people called to live as a sign and foretaste of the coming cosmic reconciliation to show this present world what the world to come is like by the way we live at peace in and amongst ourselves. And so it's worth asking, is this the way we're living with one another? 
Perhaps this is an opportunity for you to ask yourself this personally. Is there, is there anybody in this room or outside it to whom you need to be reconciled? Is there anyone who has offended you or that you have offended and instead of pursuing peace and reconciliation, you've, you've nursed bitterness in your heart? You've, you've, you've treasured and held on to a grudge. Instead of forgiving or repenting or reconciling or letting love cover a multitude of sins, you've, you've let grudges and bitterness fester and grow. That describes you, Christian. You're not living as who you are in Christ. You are a new creation in Him called to live as a sign and foretaste of the new creation to come, and thus you are called to pursue peace and reconciliation to demonstrate and display what God's coming world will hold for us. We're to show forth the life to come, which will be a world of complete restoration and reconciliation and perfect peace, wherein heaven and earth will be at one. Of course, that won't be accomplished until Christ's second advent, but even now, His reconciling work is to be displayed among us because it has already begun to take root in us. Realize what, what will one day be true of the entirety of the creation is true of us and God, our God, right now. Because what Christ has accomplished in His cross is not just cosmic reconciliation of the age to come, but the reconciliation of us to God, even now. To me, lastly, at God and us at one. And just as in Genesis 3, the curse on the created order began as enmity between God and humanity, so the peace of the created order now begins with reconciliation between God and humanity. So it makes sense that the Apostle Paul, as he speaks about the reconciliation and peace of all creation in the age to come, in the same breath, he speaks about reconciliation and peace between God and us. He goes on writing in verse 21, saying, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, that we, apart from Christ, prior to knowing Christ, are alienated. That is, we're, we're separated, estranged from, at odds with God. Why? Because we're, we're hostile in mind, he says, apart from Christ. He says, we don't live in some state of neutrality toward God. No, in and of ourselves, we are hostile to God. We hate God. God, we run from Him. We want nothing to do with Him. We're at war with Him. We want Him dead. This is why we do evil deeds and disobey Him and rebel against Him. Is because we hate God and thus we are separated from Him. Which is really the greatest of all tragedies in human existence because God is the one by whom and for whom we were made and thus being separated from Him means being separated from the source and purpose of our life, being separated from our very home. But that's not where the story ends because our God is so kind, so gracious, so benevolent, so magnanimous in love 
While we were still his enemies, while we were still hostile to God, Christ came and died for us. He stepped into our flesh. And in our flesh, he stepped into our death so that we might be reconciled to God again. Christ is both God and man in one so that he might reconcile God and man as one. Of course, last week we explored this idea of propitiation, of how Christ satisfied the righteous wrath of God. But what we see this morning gives us cause to rejoice, not just in what Christ has saved us from, but what He has saved us for. He has saved us from God's wrath and an eternity of just punishment from Him, and He has saved us for He has saved us for something. He saved us for right relationship with God. Reconciliation means going from being enemies to being friends, from being alienated to being in agreement, from hostility to harmony, from rancor to relationship. And the Bible speaks about this relationship in, in several different ways. Sometimes it portrays our relationship with God as a friendship, which is so sweet. Sometimes as a, as a father-child relationship, such, such intimacy and care. Sometimes as, a, as the intimacy of a husband and wife relationship. And, and, there's, and there's more, but what's clear is that this is what we have been saved for as God's people. We have been redeemed and forgiven so that we might know and be known by the God by and for whom we have been made. We have been reconciled. You have been saved to know and be known by God, Christian. Not, not, not to just know a list of doctrines. Not to just give intellectual assent to a set of Christian beliefs. Not to just be glad you're not going to hell forever. But to know and be known by God. To experience relationship with Him. So I wonder, do, do you live in light of that precious gift? Does your, does your soul know the thrill and joy of communion with the living God? Or are you satisfying yourself with something far less than what has been purchased for you at great cost? Christ died that you might know and be known by God. And this purpose will endure forever and ever, which is why Paul goes on to speak about our one day being presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is speaking about that coming day when Christ will come to make all things new, when he will perfectly restore and renew all of the created order. And he says that in that day, we will be presented to God. We will be given to God as a pure and spotless and guiltless people, which Pastor Dan will speak to more next week. But suffice it to say for now, as his redeemed people, we will forever dwell with God in that renewed creation because Christ has taken away our guilt and atoned for our sin and made us spotless and guiltless before God. And so he will be glad in that day to receive us as his very own treasured possession to live with him as his beloved forever. This is why Christ has come. This is what he has accomplished in his first advent. And it's what we look forward to seeing the completion of in his second. If indeed, the apostle goes on to say, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If I only had time to talk more about this. But suffice it to say, briefly now, in other words, he says we can expect that bright and glorious future if we persevere and remain steadfast until we possess it. And to be clear, Paul doesn't say that the Colossians, and by implication, our final perseverance is in question here. No, the, the, the Greek construction of this sentence indicates, as one scholar puts it, not an uncertain prospect, but a necessary condition and an almost certain assumption. Paul is at once insistent and confident they must continue, and he is certain they will. And certain perseverance can, can only be a reality, of course, because of God's power to preserve us. This is why Paul can write to the Philippian church in Philippians 1.6, saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He says that if God has begun this good work in us, we can be certain that he will preserve us and one day present us to himself as we're promised here. It is a surety. And yet even still, we are not void of responsibility in this call to persevere here. There's a real challenge and call laid upon us to fight, to remain steadfast in this hope that we have. We are called to remain stable and steadfast, he says. And how do we do that, you might ask? We do that by not shifting away from the only solid foundation we have in this life. We're not to shift away, he says, from the hope of the gospel. We're not to shift away from the good news and glad tidings of Christ's advent and cross and resurrection and second advent. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be our central focus and only foundation in life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to be of first and primary importance to us as Christians. It is the chief article of our faith. It is to be the, the very center of all our beliefs and of our very lives. You see here, Paul, Paul's exhorting us. He's telling us the gospel is not merely relevant to us in the beginning of our Christian life. It is the very lifeblood and soul and oxygen of the Christian life. As Tim Keller's put it, it's not the ABC of the Christian life. It's the entire alphabet. As Christians, we don't move on from the gospel. We cling to it all the more as we sojourn on in the Christian life. It is the only solid foundation that will keep us stable and steadfast. It is the only hope we have of persevering and making it to the end. And Paul wants the Colossians to treasure and cling to the gospel in this way. Because they live in a time and place wherein they're constantly being tempted to trust in other saviors, other mediators, other lords, and angels, and rites, and ceremonies to deconstruct, to deconvert. They're constantly being beckoned away from the centrality of Jesus and His saving work, and our life today is no different. Constantly being bombarded by the ideologies and philosophies of our age. Consistently being tempted to deconstruct or make something other than Christ the center. But if we are going to persevere and remain stable and steadfast, we must keep the main thing the maiden thing. 
We must keep Christ at the center of Veritas Community Church and at the center of our very lives and hearts. And we have good reason to do so because there is nothing else and no one else that can ever compare to the Lord Jesus. He alone is the preeminent one. He alone is the supreme majesty and king over all heaven and earth. He alone is the savior of his people. He alone is both God and man come to unite all of heaven and earth and reconcile God and man. He alone is the creator who put on creation to bring reconciliation to the whole of his creation and even to fallen, alienated creatures like us. So our call is to cling to him, to not shift away from him, to treasure him as our savior and closest friend. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the table, we pray that you would fix our eyes on what this table is proclaiming to us, namely the Lord Jesus and his blood shed on the cross to bring peace to us and you as well as to the entirety of the created order. May this meal before us be a celebration and a a, a cementing of our communion with you as we've been reconciled to you through the Lord Jesus. May it also be an appetizer and a foretaste of the feast we have to look forward to in the age to come when we see our Savior face to face. By these realities, strengthen us to go out into this world and to represent that coming kingdom with faithfulness and fruitfulness for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.